Hey, Rarecast listeners, Global Genes Next 2021, A Time for Resilience and Ingenuity, is now available to download. This is our annual report on the major developments in rare disease and looks ahead to trends that are reshaping the landscape. To get your free electronic copy, go to globalgenes.org and look for a link to the report on the homepage. You can also go to bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash 2021 next report. The electronic version is free. On-demand print copies can also be ordered for a fee. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Economic burden of rare disease in the United States reached nearly $1 trillion in 2019, according to a new study from the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. About 43% of that total is for direct medical costs. The balance includes such things as forced retirement, absenteeism, and presenteeism, the lost productivity of people who show up to work but are not fully functioning. We spoke to Annie Kennedy. Chief of Policy and Advocacy at the Every Life Foundation, about the study, its policy implications, and why the numbers are conservative. Annie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here today. We're going to talk about the economic burden of rare disease in the United States, the Every Life Foundation's recent study, and what these new insights provide in how they should be used to inform policy and and other action within the rare disease community. Perhaps we can begin with the study itself. How was it conducted and what exactly was it trying to do? Sure. Well, so thank you for having me and for the opportunity to talk about this study today. This was a really collective effort of our broader rare disease community, and it really bubbled out of a convening of all of our partners, one of the things we do at the Everlight Foundation is we convene what's called our Community Congress, which brings together patient advocacy groups, as well as biopharmaceutical industry partners and academic partners. One of our working groups is our public policy working group. And almost two years ago, probably closer to 18 months ago, the public policy working group was really looking at where the evidence gaps are in therapeutic development and infrastructure around regulatory decision-making and access decision-making. And what we discussed and what we realized is that we have a lot of information out there about rare diseases. We believe that there are somewhere between 7,000, 8,000, some estimates up to 10,000 rare diseases. There are prevalence estimates that there are about 30 million U.S. Um, people living with rare diseases. Um, But we don't have any real good data. The data is really variable about 
who has rare diseases, what it costs to live with rare diseases in the U.S., what the economic impact of rare diseases are. So what the goal was, was to actually move from these anecdotal cost estimates, these back-of-the-envelope estimates, to some real high-quality evidence around the economic impact of rare diseases in the U.S., and to do that by looking at the direct medical costs, which is typically what cost of illness or burden of disease studies do, but to also look at the indirect and non-medical costs, the costs that are not often discussed and looked at in the medical system are the costs that are absorbed by families and are hidden in actuarials. And so we worked with our broader community to really um, embark on that endeavor, and it took over 18 months, and we're really excited to dig into that with you here today. One of the challenges with gauging an impact like this is it involves multipliers that are themselves estimates. How did you go about calculating the impact, and how conservative or aggressive do you think the numbers were? So we were very conservative in our investment in our estimates all along the way. Um, There are a number of limitations that we had to um, place on the study just because of the limitations in rare disease in general. Um, One of the limitations is there are codes known as the International Classification of Disease Codes. So codes that are assigned to all of us for all of the conditions that we live with, whether we're talking about high blood pressure or pregnancy or specific rare disease, there is a code called an ICD code. And in rare diseases, there, while we estimate that there are about 7,000 or more rare diseases, we only have ICD codes for about 500 of those diseases, which means when you begin to track the direct cost, the data in actuarials, in your health benefits, in your insurance records, we can only track that data by disease for 500, about 500 of those diseases. So that's one of the limitations. Um, There are certainly other limitations, but whenever there was a decision to be made, we were conservative. And that was important because we consider this to be a foundational study a beginning, and there is certainly much more to be done. But the analogy, um, I, so I, you know, I'm an image person, and the analogy I like to use when I think of the study is, I think it is, you know, if we think of the iceberg and the um, image of the tip of the iceberg, what we tried to do with this study is, in policy, in discussions about access, if you're a family living with a rare disease, which many of us are, the discussions, the considerations are often based on direct cost data, the costs that are showing up in your physician's visits, your um, ER admissions, your prescriptions. And that, to me, is the tip of the iceberg, what we can see above the water surface. The costs that we don't see in the public domain are all those costs under the water surface, all those costs that are absorbed by families but don't get counted in the broader public health domain. So costs of medical foods and medical nutrition that are not paid for elsewhere but are paid out-of-pocket for families, costs for out-of-pocket caregiver expenses, costs for home renovations because of disease progression and the need for modifications for accessibility, costs for out-of-pocket 
durable medical equipment. Um, the costs absorbed because you are no longer in the workplace and you've had to retire early or you you are not working full time because you are a caregiver or you yourself have a disability due to your diagnosis. So those costs were things that were very important to us to calculate as part of this study and to bring into the broader discussion around rare disease overall and around what it means to be living with a rare disease to individuals, to families, and to the broader public. Walk me through the process. How was the study conducted? Sure. So we worked with the Lewin Group. So um, the Lewin Group is a health economic firm that conducts um, many of the nation's largest health economic studies for many communities. So we um, contracted with the Lewin Group to do the study with us. And our initial contract with them was to do the direct cost study and then the indirect and non-medical piece of this. Um, And just for taxonomy purposes or definitions, you know, I talked a little bit about direct medical costs. So those are your inpatient hospital stays, your outpatient care, your physician visits, your prescription medications. Um, And what we asked them to do was include those costs from Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial health data. And then we also asked them to look at the indirect and non-medical costs. So indirect costs are the costs of lost productivity. So that's absenteeism. So if you are no longer in the workplace at all, or a term that's called presenteeism. So for those who are still at work, but not as productive as you could be. So that's either because maybe you're a caregiver and you spend a lot of time scheduling appointments, or you're just exhausted and you're not working up to your capacity, or you're the an individual with a diagnosis or a disability. And again, your ability to perform is compromised because of your condition or disability. Um, And then non-medical costs are those other costs that I was talking about. So the transportation costs, costs of accommodations, medical supplements, et cetera. And so we contracted with the Lewin Group to endeavor on a study that would look at all of those. And so as they got started, um, we initially were only looking at, so as I talked about, there are 500 ICD codes in rare diseases. And we initially had them just looking at six very broad rare disease codes. And um, so that was the initial project. Um, They then started a literature search. So the way they were going to look at the indirect and non-medical costs was by conducting a literature search. And they came back and said to us, they weren't going to be able to do that piece because there really wasn't much literature around non-medical and indirect costs in rare diseases. It just hadn't been done much. Previous studies that had been conducted um, often were done outside of the U.S. and had differing methodologies. And it would really potentially compromise the strength of our study if we were to include that as is. So we went back to them and actually contracted them to do what we refer to as a sub-study And we then spent the next six months working with our patient advocacy group partners. So we worked with about 100 organizations to develop a survey that we then worked again with those partners to disseminate to the broad rare disease community. And why that was so important is that, as you know, rare disease is not a monolith. We have such variability in our rare disease community, depending on what your diagnosis is 
And so it was so important to us to work with our partners to say, if we're going to conduct this survey, if we're going to actually start to collect data and move from our very important narratives around our journeys, but to translate that lived experience of our disease into real hard data around what that costs, what are those data elements that we need to collect? And where are the common data elements that we can begin to collect in rare disease? And so we spent six months developing that survey. And then we pushed it out to the community last summer. And we asked um, our partners to disseminate that with and for us. And we had, um, at the end of the day, close to 1,400 members of the rare disease community who completed the survey from start to finish. And those 1,400 community members who responded um, represented 379 rare diseases. And what that meant was that we could expand our direct cost analysis from those six original codes to 379 diseases. So the inclusion of the broad rare disease community, the participation of everyone who participated in that study enabled us to really strengthen the power of the data we were going to collect in our direct cost analysis also. So I think that's just so important for people to understand. While it was not easy to take that survey, we appreciate how much time that took, how important and impactful that participation was, um, because that directly contributed to the data that we were able to pull out for the study. And what did you ultimately find? So what we found what we found was, and the way I qualify this is it was staggering, but not surprising. And so I think for all of us, um, it feels a little bit validating. But what we found was that the overall cost of rare disease is um, close to a trillion dollars. Um, and that's combined in all categories. So the total cost of the 379 rare diseases that we looked at was $966 billion in 2019. So we were looking at one year of data and that broke down across the cast categories that um, the direct costs were um, in direct medical costs, that was $418 billion. And then the indirect and non-medical costs were greater than the direct medical costs, which again, it, for us in the community, we suspected that. We suspected that the costs absorbed by families, those that families pay out of pocket, would be greater than the direct medical costs. And those were $548 billion in 2019. And does this is this limited to those 379 diseases? Yes. yes. So this so, is not even extrapolated across the entire population of rare disease. That is correct. Now, the one thing I will say is that what we can't do is we, so what, what we know what we know right now, what we can't do is back of the envelope math to say, okay, well, we have 379 diseases. So how do we extrapolate that out to 7,000? Because we do have within the 379, we do have some very, some of the more prevalent rare diseases included in this data. So we do have cystic fibrosis and hemophilia, some of the prevalent, more prevalent muscular dystrophies, but we also have some of the most ultra of the ultra rare. So there's a lot of balance in this data. And again, this was determined and driven by who participated in the survey. 
which diseases got pulled into this. Um, but again, to your point, this is just 379 rare diseases. And what we believe is there are an estimated more than 7,000 rare diseases. Many rare diseases are without treatments today. When therapies do emerge, do they, they do tend to be expensive. Do we know anything about the cost of living with a rare disease when approved treatments exist compared to conditions where no approved therapies exist? So one of the things we began to look, what we're trying to begin to look at, so I should have said from the outset, we um, released, when we started to get the data, we released this report because we thought it was really important to get the data out quickly. Um, but we are going to be releasing a publication in the late spring with much more data as we're doing finer data analyses. So there will be more data to come from the survey. Um, and so that we can begin to see if there are additional trends or other cost drivers that we can look at. So it may be that a few months from now, I could even answer that question better than I can now. And if there are additional trends that we can look at, um, I think the, to your question, the fact that there are so few rare diseases that have approved therapies, and even for those that do have a, approved therapies, those approvals were so recent, especially if we look at the 2019 snapshot, it may be too soon to tell what the um, impact of that treatment on the overall cost of living with the disease is. Um, I think there are a lot of other factors we should probably also begin to mix into that. What we do also see in some of the data and some of the survey questions is that we have other um, cost impacts and other inefficiencies really where we have, we ask questions for folks around that would try and get at the diagnostic journey. So I think in rare disease, we know that there are extensive heartbreaking diagnostic journeys in rare disease um, and diagnostic odysseys. And what we wanted to try and understand is how those diagnostic odysseys translated economically. And so we started to ask questions around, and we had questions in the survey. We worked with the Undiagnosed Diseases Network at NIH to um, understand how best to ask the questions around when um, survey respondents had um, first experienced their symptoms. So the number of years since they had first experienced a symptom of rare disease, how many years since they'd had a confirmed diagnosis of their rare disease, and the average number of specialists they had seen um, since they had their first rare disease symptom and um, before they had their confirmed diagnosis, just to get at what was that time period and how many specialists were you visiting. And what we know is that the mean was that um, survey respondents saw an average of 16.9, so almost 17 rare disease specialists during that time period over a mean of 6.3 years. So that really does underscore the potential for improved diagnostics and newborn screening. And so while we look at, there are certainly therapeutics that we want to incentivize and ensure we have pathways for. We also have other opportunities in rare disease to um, not just improve the diagnostic exper 
journey, but also reduce costs in diagnosis. So I think there are going to be a lot of things that come out of the study that we as a community will be looking to drive policy around. There have been a, a number of studies about the cost of chronic diseases, such as diabetes, cancer, heart disease. How, do you, how did your findings compare to what's known about those kinds of conditions? Yeah, so we certainly, we, we rank among them. Um, and for the one thing, again, I will qualify. I just want to make sure that I'm um, stating all the limitations. Many of the studies only include direct costs. Um, they did not look at the indirect and non-medical costs. So when we are really doing comparisons, we need to look at apples to apples. Um, the other thing is to remember, in some of those studies, they have those communities have the benefit of having clean ICD codes or comprehensive ICD codes. So they can look at a full community and we can only look at a slice of our community. So I think we have to be careful to remember that if we're going to compare numbers, we should look at our direct cost numbers, maybe not the overall number, but then we're only looking at 379 rare diseases, not the full rare disease community. Even with that caveat, if we look at our, whether you look at our 966 billion number, which is the full number of direct medical costs and indirect medical costs, or our $418 billion number, which is our direct medical costs. Either way, it does um, show that the public health impact of rare disease is greater than the projected public health impact of um, diabetes, cancer, heart disease and stroke, um, arthritis, it really does speak to the public health urgency of rare disease in the U.S. And for, from our perspective, that's, that is not to say that those are not also public health urgencies. They certainly are. And in rare disease, those are also comorbidities for many of our diseases. Many people with rare diseases also live with many of those conditions, some of them directly related to the rare diseases. The reason why it's important for us to point that out is because the funding um, and the resources and the awareness attributed to rare disease does not at all match the public health urgency of rare disease. And one of our priorities now is to make sure that we raise the flag on rare disease and help ensure that rare is not considered rare and that we ensure that we begin to um, fund and resource rare diseases to the degree that they are impacting our American public. I think uh, at the top of our conversation, you described the, the findings as staggering, but not surprising. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I suspect you had some expectations going into the study. Having gone through the numbers, did anything surprise you in, in your findings? Yeah, I think the one thing that surprised me, um, and I, I still, I think about this often, when I, I expected the indirect and non-medical costs to be greater than the direct medical costs. I've, um, I have family members with rare diseases. I, I've been in this community for over two decades. I, I expected that. What um, I did not expect them to be so much higher. And I also am struck by the fact that we're talking about one year of data. We asked people when they took the survey to think about their 2019 expenses. So before COVID, which COVID has certainly impacted all of us significantly, 
but for families with rare disease, I would say exponentially so. And so what I'm struck by is what would this look like if we asked families to talk about the indirect and non-medical cost of living with a rare disease over the course of their rare disease or over even just one decade, maybe not even over their lifespan or over the course of the disease. Because as we all know, those are cumulative costs. So 2019 may not have been the year that you traveled to those 17 specialists in many states for a diagnosis, or may not have been the year that you made the most expensive out-of-pocket home modifications for your loved one or yourself because of your disease progression or because you've lost ambulation. Um, And so what would it look like, though, if we asked people to share that data with us? And how would that really inform our decision making? So I think, again, we're just beginning to peek under the surface of the iceberg and understand what we can do with this data and how this should be informing our decision making. The portion of expenses for healthcare services not covered by insurance is $38 billion in a in a trillion dollar scheme that may seem like next to nothing. But, you know, I suspect this is one of the biggest pain points for rare disease patients and their families. Do you get any insight to how people are coping at an individual level and how this financial toll impacts patients and their families beyond looking at just the big numbers? Yeah, I thank you for that question. I think that's really important. I think for families, um, I've talked to a lot of people over the last, you know, couple of weeks as we've been um, going through this data, we put together actually a work group of members of the community to review the data with us as it was coming in to make sure we were reviewing it from all the variety of respective lenses of our diverse community um, before we released this report. And what we heard from people was, first of all, that it was validating. Um, Secondly, that they felt like this was a significant underestimate and that this was, even though we were conservative, they felt like this was even more conservative than their lived experience. Um, And then they really helped us, you know, bring this data to life and talked about what those costs are. And so what you're talking about are prescribed expenses, what, what the doc, what their physicians and their nurse practitioners and their medical providers say they need in order to sustain and maintain their life, but that don't get reimbursed so that you're forced to pay out of pocket for. You're talking about in a condition like PKU, the medical food that's necessary to sustain your life over your lifetime that families pay out of pocket for over their lifetime. You know, you're talking about expensive dental procedures and surgeries that enable people to eat and swallow and maintain nutrition that, again, are paid for out of pocket. And so, again, I think um, people go into bankruptcy in order to make life possible for their children. And as one mother said, a parent's ability to care for their child should not depend on their finances. Um, And regardless of what somebody's financial position is, when they or their child is first diagnosed, that can drastically change over their lifespan with their rare disease. That needs to change. 
And so I think this data, though, will help empower those conversations. And we can now actually begin to have those conversations with policymakers as we point to where those cost drivers are. There are a lot of um, rare disease communities that are leading legislative efforts right now for their respective rare disease communities to really um, fight for access to those medical needs and those medical services and those medical products. And what we're hoping is that this data emboldens and informs those efforts. Um, we led this effort to empower and be the wind in the sails of the rare disease community and to inform all of those efforts. And we really hope that this does that. Every Life Foundation is a policy advocacy organization. How should these numbers inform policy and are there specific measures Every Life expects to pursue as a result of the study? Yep. So the, I mean, the first thing we're doing is, so right now is rare across America. So we have um, more than 800 advocates who are participating in close to 400 meetings with members of Congress this week, which of course are being um, done virtually, but we're grateful to everyone who's participating in those. Um, advocates are, again, working on respective disease community specific asks. But one of the things that advocates are going to the Hill and talking about is the need to increase funding into um, rare disease. And so what we know is that based on this study, rare diseases represent an urgent public health crisis, and that demands increased funding for research, enhanced awareness, and resources to improve access to all the things we're talking about, timely diagnosis, care, and treatment. And so we are um, working and supporting members of Congress who are leading appropriation an appropriations ask for increased funding to rare disease research at NIH, to the orphan products program at FDA, and to um, an effort at CDC to improve the ICD code process so that we can move beyond um, counting and understanding the impact in 500 diseases to eventually understanding the direct cost impact of what we would hope would be all 7,000 rare diseases. Annie Kennedy, Chief of Policy and Advocacy for the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. Annie, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.